Now, I'm no movie expert, uh, but it seems to me that movies have three basic plots. There are love stories, Casablanca. Uh, there are journey stories, where people travel or they change in some way. Uh, and then there are hero stories. Uh, it might be a Western, it might be a war movie, it might be a science fiction, or popular one at the moment, it might be a superhero movie. Uh, the hero will achieve a great victory, otherwise they're not a hero. They might win a war, uh, destroy a Death Star, win the Hunger Games, find the treasure, or ride across a mountain range. But one thing hero movies all have in common, as far as I can tell, is some sort of self-sacrificial rescue. Uh, often it's the climax of the movie. The hero risks his life or loses something to save a person. The greater the sacrifice, the better the story. We love that sort of story, don't we? We love that sort of story because I think we love that sort of hero. We love the Anzacs. Uh, we love our surf lifesavers. Uh, we love our firefighters. People who risk their lives or, or even give their lives to save people. And we love the leader who puts his followers before himself. Uh, we love the sports hero who stands out on the field but then in the interview afterwards is humble, even if he's not, at least he says he's humble, uh, who talks about the rest of the team or the opponent rather than about himself. Uh, and we're appalled at the company CEO who earns $20 million a year plus bonuses while he's retrenched half of his workforce. Uh, or the developer who gets elected to his local council for the sole purpose of pushing through his own developments. That's not a leader. Uh, how did we get to that place? Uh, the place where we value the humble leader more than the proud and arrogant one. Where we value the self-sacrificing hero rather than the all-conquering victor. How do we get to the place where politicians are expected to serve the people they represent rather than exploit them? Uh, or where the world superpower America is just expected to protect weak nations rather than conquer them? Uh, it's certainly not historically the, the normal picture of a leader that we see. Go back to the ancient Greeks. They viewed a hero as someone who ruthlessly conquered and ruled, uh, like Alexander the Great. Uh, you were expected to worship a leader like that. Uh, humility was seen as a weakness, not a virtue. Humility was forced onto you rather than something you would choose. Well, let's jump to the Romans. Caesar Augustus was a hero. Uh, he killed 300 senators and 200 warriors. He then conquered the world and declared that he was a god. Uh, the European feudal system through the Middle Ages wasn't really much different. Uh, it viewed heroes, the knights, uh, nobly born, skilful in battle, uh, but they pursued personal glory above anything else. Uh, leaders ruled with an iron fist, exploited their subjects for what they could get. Now, sometimes, admittedly, the, the, the lord of the manor looked after the peasants, but it was still very clear who was helping who, and the lords uh, always expected gratitude and respect and obedience in return. 
the Crusades, uh, 11th to the 14th centuries. In a sense, they were established by the church, but there was no Christian conviction behind that, was there? It was greed and pride and personal agendas. We can say the same thing for the Spanish Inquisition and the Conquistadors or the British colonisation of India and half of Africa during the 15th and 16th century. Personal agendas, greed and pride. There wasn't any genuine Christian leadership conviction. And I wonder, we've got enough historians here, maybe they can tell me whether I'm right, but I'm wondering if it wasn't really until the Reformation during the 1500s when the Bible's teaching was rediscovered that a new type of hero emerged or should perhaps re-emerged. Martin Luther read his Bible, rediscovered grace, and went on to risk his life again and again to make sure the message of salvation got to the people, the people he was serving and leading. His life was irrelevant. Uh, He was asked to appear before a trial on charges of heresy and he wrote, You ask me what I shall do if I'm called by the emperor. I'll go even if I'm too sick to stand on my feet. If Caesar calls me, God calls me. If violence is used, as it well may be, as well it may be, I commend my cause to God. He lives and reigns, who saved the three youths from the fiery furnace of the king of Babylon. And if he will not save me, my head is worth nothing compared with Christ. This is no time to think of safety. I must take care that the gospel is not brought into contempt by our fear to confess and seal our teaching with our blood. Now, there's a leader willing to sacrifice himself for his people. During the Reformation, there are countless stories of church leaders who did exactly the same thing, who went to their death for the cause of the gospel. The Reformation uh, produced the Puritans who founded America. Uh, Puritans inspired the push for the abolition of uh, slavery through William Wilberforce. Uh, Puritans helped uh, soften the the harsh control of England through the East India Company in India. Uh, These were Christians. Uh, Where did all this self-sacrifice come from, this humility of service? Well, it came from Jesus, didn't it? Uh, Jesus, who didn't just teach about servant leadership, who lived it, who died it, and who commands us to do the same. The passage we read earlier, Matthew 20, Jesus, just before that, takes the 12 disciples aside and he tells them yet again what lays in store for him, what he is willingly heading towards. Verse 18, Jesus warns that he'll be betrayed, condemned to death, flogged and crucified, but on the third day he'll be raised to life. Uh, Then in a surprising case of selective hearing, James and John's mum comes to Jesus with a request Uh, and her two boys are are right there too, they're over her shoulder. Uh, She's forgotten all about or or chosen not to hear all about the the suffering and the death bit. She's only heard the bit about heading to Jerusalem. That's where the military victory is going to happen in her mind. Verse 21, she says... Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
She's saying to Jesus, I like this idea that you're going to be king. Now, when the victory happens, since I asked first, can my two boys get the best spots? Now, we thought tiger mums was only a recent thing, didn't we? But they've been around forever. Jesus says to the sons, because it's really about the sons, you don't understand what you're asking. They still haven't understood. He spent so long teaching them about a kingdom of service and sacrifice and suffering and rejection in the world and yet here they are, so near the end, asking for honour and recognition and power. To even ask means they haven't understood at all. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink, he says? Can you endure the suffering that's in store? Like most males who interview for a job, they're overconfident in their own abilities. We can, they answered. Jesus said, well, that's true, you you will suffer for me, but it's not up to me to hand out the leadership roles. The Father has prepared those places. Now, that's only a minor comment from Jesus, but it says something significant about his own humility, doesn't it? About his own attitude to power. He's content with his place. He willingly submits to the Father. He defers authority to him. So on the one hand, he's he's rebuking the ambition and the pride of James and John, while at the same time modelling for us the right attitude to worldly ambition. Servant leaders, humble servant leaders are content. Humble servant leaders look down rather than look up. They they look down and serve the people they're leading rather than looking up to drag others back to them. That's Jesus. Back to John, uh, James and John. Uh, The brothers were asking for power and glory. But isn't it ironic uh, that when Jesus comes into his kingdom, those on his right and left are a long way from power and glory? Think about it. When Jesus comes in his kingdom, when he's raised on that cross, which is really when his kingdom comes, who are those on his right and left? Well, they're two criminals who die with him. That's what it means to be on Jesus' right and left when he comes in his kingdom. It means to take up a cross and be crucified with him. And I don't think James and John had that in mind when they asked Well, at this point, the other disciples notice and their reaction is fascinating. It'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. Verse 24, they're indignant with the two brothers. (laughs) But this is no righteous defending of Jesus' honour, is it? This is no, you've got it completely wrong, your theology's way off. They're jealous, pure and simple. They wish they'd thought of it first. So close to the end and none of the disciples have any idea of what Jesus is on about. So he calls them together again, verse 25, gather round, another leadership lesson. And he says in verse 25, 
you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's just describing the way the world rules. Uh, their decisions of, the, the decisions of rulers are based on purely what will further their own cause, what will bring them wealth and glory and recognition and get them in front of their competitors. Now, it wasn't meant to be an insult. It was just a description. It was a known fact. It was the reality of leadership in the Greco-Roman world. If there'd been Gentile rulers listening, they would have nodded their heads in agreement and said, sure, yeah, that's right. That's what a leader should do. In many parts of the non-Western world, that's still the way leaders rule. If someone has any sort of authority or hold over people, they will just exploit it to their own advantage. Uh, there'll be bribes, uh, there will be influence exerted, there'll be favours looked for. From a checkpoint guard to a building inspector, a visa processing official, an election officer, a librarian, a parking attendant, a policeman, someone who accepts tenders for jobs, whoever it is, they'll look for an ad some sort of uh, bribe, some way to advance themselves. David Lim was telling us at Home Group this week that there are still places today, not too far from Australia, where you have to bribe a doctor just to go on a waiting list in a hospital. It's just accepted that corruption and bribery is the way you do business. It's the way to grease the wheels of industry. It's just accepted. Rulers lord it over the people they rule. Certainly what an evolutionary view of the world would expect, isn't it? It's just survival of the fittest. Those with the power should exploit it for their own benefit, so they survive. But here Jesus redefines leadership in contrast to the leadership of the world. Look at what he says next, verse 26. He's turning things upside down yet again. He's already taught how, how the kingdom belongs to little children rather than the powerful. He's already taught uh, how it's the rich... Uh, who will find it almost impossible to enter the kingdom. And once again, he turns it upside down when he says, verse 26, not so with you, you're not to be like that. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Jesus redefines great leadership. Great leadership is not the person who conquers and accumulates and builds his own empire, who demands praise and gratitude, the great leader serves. India's first Prime Minister understood this. He declared in a speech, fellow citizens, I've come to you as your first servant because that is what Prime Minister literally means. He got it. That's the attitude we appreciate in our leaders. It's one of the things that people appreciated in Tim Fisher, who just died in the last couple of weeks. Most people will concede he wasn't the most talented politician we've ever seen, but people appreciated his humility and his service. It's perhaps a bit surprising to some of us, I think, that Jesus isn't actually discouraging us from wanting to be great. I think he's actually even commending it. I think he's saying it's a good thing to want to be great, to be ambitious, 
It's not wrong to want to be ambitious. He, he says it just needs to be the right sort of ambition. It needs to be a godly ambition rather than a worldly ambition. He's saying it's a good thing to want to be great, to want to be first. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good thing to want to be in Christian leadership. Godly, though, not worldly ambition is what we should have. What's godly, what's godly ambition look like rather than worldly ambition? Well, the difference is all about your motivation. It's all about your motivation. The motivation isn't to do this leadership position because it'll look good on your resume or it boosts your ego or because the pay is good or because people will notice and appreciate you. The reason you should want to lead is because you're better able to serve someone in that position than not. People with worldly ambition are first to jump into the queue and will elbow others out of the way. They'll undermine and drag people back and talk them down and push themselves forward. Every conversation is about furthering their own cause. That's worldly ambition. But here's what godly ambition looks like. It's the first to volunteer to be the servant, to take the job that nobody else wants. It goes to the back of the queue rather than the front. It's being content that nobody notices. Godly ambition is joyfully spending hours preparing a Sunday school lesson. It's weeks practising the piano. It's years doing a theological degree. It's a decade raising kids or leading youth group or leading home group because you're serving those people that you lead. They come first, you come second. The servant leader is the first to arrive and the last to leave. The servant leader never asks anyone to do anything she's not willing to do herself. That's what godly ambition looks like, a servant leader. And here's what else godly ambition looks like. Verse 28, the ultimate self-sacrificing hero. Just as... The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He could have, should have come to lord it over people, but he didn't. He came to serve. He put aside his eternal glory, his privilege, his position, and made himself nothing, finite, limited, he caught colds and scraped his knee. And he offered his life in self-sacrificing rescue to a world who rejected and despised him. That's why we love the cross, isn't it? That's why we wear it around our necks or in our ears. The cross is a, the greatest symbol of humility and leadership, of self-sacrificing heroics. Our leader, our saviour, our king hung there and he calls us to follow him and take up our crosses and to do it daily. 
The cross is the type of leader Jesus wants you to be. It's the type of husband he calls you to be, the type of father. It's the type of boss, sports captain, Sunday school teacher, mother, grandmother, roster organiser, secretary. Whatever area of leading you're involved in, put others first, sacrificially serve them. And don't forget the attitude. (laughs) It's not just action. It's no good obeying Jesus and serving other people, but doing it resentfully or spitefully or in a resigned, oh, I suppose I've got to do it again. Or doing it out of judgmentalism. Yeah, I'll do it, but he's not doing anything. No point doing it like that. Our attitude is to be one of humility, isn't it? Isn't it fascinating that before the time of Jesus, humility was a character weakness? It was something you never chose for yourself. It was something someone did to you, humbled you. And yet Jesus came along and chose humility, chose self-sacrifice and servanthood for the sake of others. In Philippians 2, Paul is thinking of Jesus, but he wants to put hands and feet on what humility looks like. Uh, And he says this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, uh, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does humility look like? Consider others more than you consider yourself. Think about others first. Listen to their opinions. C.S. Lewis defines humility like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And humility shows itself in unity. Uh, When you think about yourself less and think of someone else more, uh, then you're more welcoming and you listen better and you accept what they say. Your opinion doesn't really matter that much. And our example, of course, is our servant king. Uh, Verse 5, who made himself nothing. Uh, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so what should we do? We should worship him. Because God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Trust him, follow him, worship him. Uh, In humility, serve one another. He's worth it. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to see Jesus, uh, to imitate him, to love and worship and serve and follow him, that he might be honoured and your world would come to recognise him. Amen.